0: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today's episode is really cool. We're talking to Renan Ozturk and Freddie Wilkinson uh, about their recent adventure in Alaska and film that came out. The the adventure was a few years ago, but the film came out last year, uh, The Sanctity of Space. But you might know Renan's name from uh, some other projects. He's an artist, he's a filmmaker, and a professional climber. He has been involved, uh, very well known, as the first Ascent of the shark fin route, shark's fin route on Maru in the Himalayas, which was uh, with Jimmy Chin and Conrad Anchor back in 2011. And that was documented in the documentary Maru, which came out in 2015, which kind of led the way to Free Solo, Alex Honnold's film. And so Renan is is legendary. Freddie, I didn't know as much about, but his stories were awesome. Such a great storyteller, such a great communicator. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a little bit uh, muffled. The audio kind of went out. It was three-way Wi-Fi videos, people coming from all over the country. So it, we were all spread out. Um, and so it didn't come through great all the time. But if you can work through that, it's a great conversation. And, Yeah. This was awesome. And so The Sanctity of Space is about uh, Renan and Freddie's adventure on the Moose's Tooth Massive, kind of a almost a sheet of mountains, like this curtain of mountains that you traverse. And it's following the Washburns, Bradford Washburn, the famous Alaskan photographer's expedition from way back in the day, like back in the 50s, this experience. And they're filming it and showcasing it and telling the story of Bradford, who was very accomplished mountaineer and photographer and also his wife, Barbara, who was the first woman up Denali to summit Denali, all kinds of stuff. They're graduates of Harvard. They're just legendary people. And so the film that we're talking about goes into that story as well as Renan and Freddie's climb of the Moose's Tooth Massive. So I hope you enjoy and I hope you continue to support our sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. And let's go ahead and jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little bit about Renan and Freddie's story in the intro, but I wanted to welcome them to the show. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thanks for
1: having us, Mason. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so I always ask this first, always, and, and that is, where are you coming from? And if that's not home, where is home for you? Well, I'm in, I'm in Colorado, not too far away from you, on
2: the western slope here out of Telluride, which is home for me. This is Renan.
1: <laughs> hey, this is Freddie and I'm in Madison, New Hampshire, right on the outskirts of the White Mountains. And that's home for
0: me. Oh, awesome. We've got we've got all over the place. When I'm actually in Florida right now, of all places. So <laughs> not in Colorado. So we kind of got the country triangulated pretty much. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to I kind of just jump in and, and, and learn more about this story. Where where did the idea for the sanctity of space come from? In the sense of like, when did you know this would be a story to film? And also, how how did y'all connect over this? I mean, that, there's always a story there.
1: Sure, Mason. I'll uh maybe I'll just jump in first, and then I'll I'll hand off to Renan in a little bit. And and because there really is a sort of a story behind the story in this case, and. It began back in the in the early mid 2000s when Renan and I were both kind of young climbers, wrapping up you know school and and sort of you know various uh, side careers and and finding our uh, paths. And we both were were really attracted to Alaska and mountains around Denali, and we made trips there you know separately with with different partners kind of beginning around like 2004, 2005, got to know each other a little bit and you know as climbers often do we started kind of scheming of like oh hey what's you know what's a cool cool big adventure we might team up on and i had had sort of had this idea about the moose's tooth massif and it was you know partly born from Um, a lot of the the aerial photography, and we can talk more about this, I'm sure, that I had seen that was uh, basically a traverse of the whole mountain uh, massif. And I shared that idea with Renan and another friend of ours, uh, Zach Smith, probably around, well, let me see, it's in the movie, in uh, 2008, 2009. And then, um, you know, Lots of Spencer uh, uh, happened after that, but <laughs> that's sort of the origin story, if you will.
2: Yeah, and a lot of and a lot of people ask, when does a climb turn into becoming a, a film? It's pretty, you know. At first, in a lot of these endeavors, you're not sure if you should. If, if it's worthy to make a film, there's plenty of climbing movies that show suffering stuff on Everest you know, films that we've been a part of and made, even ourselves, like, like Mary and whatnot. And I think the thing that really pushed us further to really want to make this is Washburn's story beyond anything else, because we feel we felt like it was incredible. We were discovering his story as we were making it and uncovering footage that had never been digitized before uh, when Freddie was traveling around. To the Boston Museum of Science and the Museum of the North um, getting these old tapes and we'd get one back and you'd see these images of Washburn as a spiked as a young man through these incredible endeavors that blended first, first defense and cutting edge exploration but then also with documentation and the sharing of it and it, it really paralleled what we were doing at the time in trying to bring back images from the Alaska Range and it, it just clicked that
0: moment. How much did you know about Washburn ahead of time? I know he's legendary, him and his wife, but was there a lot of familiarity there or was it constantly just learning more and uh, coming across his story?
1: You know, I think my experience, and I think this maybe speaks to like a lot of people's sort of uh, interactions with with history, right? It's like, Washburn was this figure who, you know, to me as a young climber, he was kind of always like in the background. Like, you know, you walk into the National Park building and there's that big, beautiful photo hanging. And it's like, oh, that's a Brad Washburn photo. Or, you know, you're flipping through the guidebook and you're like, oh, there's there's a, a photo of Brad doing the first descent of this climb. So he sort of was, was there in the background of my, my understanding of, of the climbing community and kind of the climbing history of Alaska, but at the same time, I had never like read a biography of him from start to finish. So I didn't really know what made him such a dynamic guy until we, we really, you know, started getting obsessed on, you know, by the climb and, and, uh, you know, learning more about him to, to make a film.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't know much of anything about about Washburn, but like the second you dig in, you realize that he's he could have been famous on the same level as Ansel Adams or Amelia Earhart for for any single thing that he did. But he did so many different things that some some for some reason he flew under the radar and wasn't as like big of a historic figure as maybe he should have been.
0: Wow. Yeah, literally flew under the radar sometimes. Um, what Was there like a fact about him or uh, his wife, Barbara, that maybe stood out and said, yes, we've got to cover this? Because like you said, first thing I thought of when I'm researching him was uh, Ansel Adams. Like this is very, you know, similar time, similar photography in the sense of just awesome landscapes. But why have I never heard about this person in this family? I've probably come across and read things, but it just didn't stick the same way that some other folks at the time have. So was there something in particular that made it say we've got to do this?
1: Well, I think one thing, Mason is I think I think the three of us are having this conversation and and talking about how how Brad's kind of this this undiscovered character. But, but that is in part sort of, I think, a generational thing. And in his day, he was very well known. He was not shy about giving interviews and talking about himself and uh, you know creating his own legacy. So that should probably be mentioned. But the thing that really drew my, me to him is that a lot of the times... The, the people we really celebrate are like just these unparalleled, like, masters at one singular thing. And Ansel Adams always told this story, like, he realized he could be a great pianist or he could be a great photographer. But he could only do one of those things and he had to sacrifice. And so he gave up being a, a professional pianist just to be a photographer. And Washburn was a true polymath in that, like, he never thought or he had to sacrifice. And he wanted to be making a map, climbing a mountain, shooting a beautiful photograph, and writing a book about it or an article for Life magazine all at the same time. And, you know, for me personally, as a creative I, I just, that's more where, where my kind of heart and soul was at. I'm way more of a, you know, do everything at once kind of a guy. So that's what drew me to him.
2: Yeah, I guess just the stories we were starting to uncover. I think Freddie showed me a letter when he he was writing back and forth with Ansel Adams. And they were arguing about the nature of landscape photography. And Washburn was, was saying they needed a figure in the landscape to show a sense of scale. Because he's often in these... Massive landscapes in the Alaska Range, and, and so Adams is saying no, it has to be pure. Um, and there are so many of those those stories and interactions that felt like people could really connect to. I mean, that one's not even in the film, but yeah, there's there's the Amelia Earhart one in the film, and and a lot of others. It's it's kind of a kind of as an endless well of both archival material and just yeah interactions that we felt in general audience could connect to and help help define what exploration is moving forward because it's yeah i think it's the waters are getting a little muddied right now with all of the kind of adrenaline based adventure content of
0: wingsuiters flying through like tiny keyholes and mountains and and things like that <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh definitely can be enticing when, when you see the attention some of those Extreme things get, but yeah, going back to just kind of the multifacetedness of Washburn, I thought it was just ridiculously cool that Barbara was the first woman to to summit Denali and was almost apprehensive about climbing in the first place, but also that Bradford was a graduate of Harvard, had nine honorary doctorates, and had he was a descendant, a direct descendant of folks from the Mayflower, and I just think holy crap, there's so many things that could make this person and, and his wife famous. It's almost ridiculous how much there is to kind of get into.
1: Yeah, yeah. A, uh, you know, a, a colorful personality for sure. You know, when I, w- when I talk about the film or when I was pitching the film, I sort of described him as like a real life Indiana Jones, because he had a day job that was very respectable, and he wore a suit and tie and was, you know, director of a, you know, a nonprofit museum, Boston Museum of Science, which, you know, if you're not from Boston or the Northeast, you know, the Boston Museum of Science is, is pride of the city sort of thing. And so he was hobnobbing with senators and you know, local dignitaries. And then on the weekends, you know, he'd put on his proverbial fedora hat and go climb a mountain or hang out the door of an airplane. And that was something we wanted to capture in the film, just how how many different things he had his hands in, I guess you could say.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: When you look at the vastness of the work in the legacy of the Washburns, Obviously, I'm, I'm sure you know Denali being a big part of Barbara's story uh, and just what they, she was famous for. Was there kind of the draw to focus on Denali? Why? Why the Moose's Tooth massive over some other areas and, and that they have fo- photographed over the years?
2: Well, that was that was just kind of the intersection with, with our story, since the film is sort of based on us seeing this creative line that goes sideways across the moose's tooth Massey on Brad's photo. And that, that really is kind of the iconic skyline of Alaska that a lot of things are named after. If you go to Anchorage or you go to Talkeetna, there's the, you know, the things are named after the moose's tooth or the bear's tooth, all things on that spiky skyline. <clears throat> and yeah, and it was it was Brad's, uh, I think, true love. And there's another part that's not in the film that's really interesting, in the in the sense of what we were talking about earlier as well, is that he never admitted that he's an artist. And in this day and age, where everybody and their brother are an artist, quote unquote, posting Instagram photos or TikTok creators and And that is its own art form. But to the end of his days, Kurt Marcus, who's in the film, tried to get it out of him and say like, you were an artist. You were trying to create art. He would never, he would never admit it. But I think his, he had this thing where he did absolutely just loved Denali National Park and flying in what we call the magic light. And yeah, his photos will stand the test of time. And Yeah, that's the that's the cross section of our story, and it just made made a lot of sense.
1: And also, the Great Gorge of the Ruth Glacier is a a geologic feature that's really really special and unique. You know, it's bigger in terms of proportions than the Grand Canyon. Biggest gorge in North America, uh, so they say, and it was something that fascinated Washburn as a geophysicist and a you know an earth scientist, not only a climber. So, and that's right, you know, part of the Mooses too is is you know the Mooses tooth rises from the Great Gorge.
0: Unbelievable! That is awesome. Yeah. 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 So, so, wh- wh- why do you think? Why do you think he was apprehensive about calling himself an artist? Do you think it was a point of pride or was it a, a product of the time? Was art artists look differently then? Like what what do you think it was? Humility? Yeah, I I mean
2: Freddie, my Freddie's kind of the historian of the group here, but I think it seemed like, yeah, it was just more more of like a, a prideful thing to be a scientist and contribute hard knowledge to the understanding of Earth rather than just like have something that stood as, as art
0: itself. And yeah, like we were just talking about the Ruth Gorge, like he was the first one to,
2: to map the depth of it at 4,000 feet thick. So those walls are going down that deep under the glacier and they rise up uh, much higher than walls in Yosemite from there. And then just, just everywhere he went, he added to the body of knowledge and that we were we were calling that know the search the search for for knowledge and that that kind of is this endless process and i think for him photos themselves maybe didn't contribute to that as much as the hard facts but the irony of it is that especially for me seeing the beauty of his photos are what what drew me in to the story and why we why we even made the film in the first place even though um
0: that's that's not what he was after so fascinating yeah there's um I would love to see a 3D rendering or maybe, well, an artist's kind of expression of what that area would look like without the snow, like how amazing those rock walls would be like, like Yosemite, you know, it's just, there's no glacier, there's nothing there, just what it would look like. I I hope we don't ever get to see that literally, um, but it would be neat to just for perspective, kind of like the 90% of an iceberg you don't get to see because it's underwater. That'd be really cool. Does that exist? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month check out that episode. Uh, that was not too far back. And uh, he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him, his body literally sustained during that time, just packing the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 Fastest Known Times, he did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming Gnarly Nutrition. He also credits Gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, Gnarly Nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels To be as nutritionally sound as possible their nutrition supplements are certified by nsf and have science-backed products free of hormones free of gmos proprietary blends uh, and nothing artificial so gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts so if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes Go to go. Gnarly. and That is G-N-A-R-L-Y.com and use the code GnarlyAdventure15 for 15% off. And just you know, a personal plug here. I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, they helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
1: It's coming. Um, Really cool, actually, that you asked that question, Mason, because Washburn, you know, and this speaks to part of his legacy, as he got older in life, he sort of carved out this niche for himself as being sort of the godfather of different expeditions and and scientific studies where he'd find a group of young scientists or climbers and kind of suggest a good idea to them and then send them out into the field and, and see what they come up with. And one of those endeavors was working with some young scientists. I believe they were glaciologists from... University of Alaska Fairbanks, they quote me on that. And they went out measured how deep, how thick the ice was in the Great Gorge. And that was like conducted in the 1980s, uh, 1990s. Those same guys have gone back just this spring with modern state-of-the-art technology and, and resurveyed it just, uh, I believe it was this May, like last month. And so, you know, it'll take probably another year for them to figure out what the data means. But I would expect that, like, that cool 3D rendering you're asking about, you know, maybe something that's that's possible in the future.
0: That would be really cool. Yeah. That would be really cool. Maybe Renan would uh, be able to do a painting of that then, what it might look like.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've done, even the Nat Geo Everest project that we did a couple of years ago um, with another friend from the New Hampshire area looking for the body of Sandy Irvin. To try to solve the mystery of Cooper's condevrous, because it's still kind of under question, it was all based on a Washburn photo that he took out of a, uh, what was the type, what was the plane, Freddy? Wasn't it like a spy plane or something?
1: It was that was a Learjet.
2: Learjet, yeah. And the mysteries and the knowledge that, that his photographs uncovered are, are still fueling all these kinds of things. And it's, yeah, it's crazy how much it lives on. Since we have this archive of aerial footage of the Alaska Range with this gyro stabilized camera system that you that you saw in the film, it's kind of one of a kind. We hope to eventually just kind of put that out there for folks wanting to use it to make films in the name of conservation and pass it on, much like Washington.
0: Wow. Well, speaking of that, I I would love to hear, there's this amazing photo of the moose's tooth where, I mean, you look at it by itself and it looks like, how could anything be bigger than this or more epic or more awesome? And then there's this amazing photo of the moose's tooth with Denali in the background. And it's like, holy crap, you forget that it's like a third of the size and Despite how epic it is, that Denali is just massive in the background, which is so cool because so many films, so many projects are focused on the biggest, the largest, you know, the best, the, the highest, you know, the 14ers in Colorado, for instance, get gets so much hype that people forget there's almost 713ers just as epic and probably a better experience because you're all alone. Um, what was it like at the top? What was it like looking around from that point of view, not being the biggest thing, but being on an epic adventure?
2: Well, I, I would say that often, like when you're on the biggest thing, it's it's not the most iconic viewpoint. And what's so incredible about the Two Traverse and the Moose's Two Skyline is you're you're on one of the most incredible skylines that you're looking across at the west side lineup of the Great Gorge, which is, as Freddie said, the largest gorge in North America, even bigger than the Grand Canyon. And you have these walls. Lining up, that are all bigger than El Cap, that are just yeah one of the most stunning views. And then above that, you have Denali, um, this behemoth rising up that's, that commands the clouds. And you really have like the best view, or what what we like to think is one of the best views in the Alaska range um, that you're staring at all day, uh, this constantly moving painting. As you're also drawing this, this line with your own body across uh, the top of the landscape. And that, that wasn't lost on us, even in the hardest moments of the climb where we should have been suffering. We could just collapse in exhaustion and look across at Denali in that West Side lineup and really appreciate where we were and the privilege it took uh, to get there and uh, all the the skills that we had worked so hard in life to learn,
1: to be able to to do that safely and, yeah, just kind of experience the wonder of it. And that was a, a big part of the film for us is showing that joy of climbing rather than the suffering and the, and the danger, which, of course, is, is always there. But that's, that's really the heart of it for us. Awesome. A couple things that make... Alaska, you know, the, the gorge special to me is that not at high altitude, which is an underappreciated characteristic of a lot of Alaska alpinism, I think. You don't have to, you know, acclimatize and then, you know, be up there performing hard technical stuff with like, you know, at above 20,000 feet where there's not a lot of oxygen. You can be breathing, you know, relatively thick air. The moose's tooth is like just a shade under 11,000 feet tall. And it's kind of infamous for not having the greatest rock. And that's true. But it's also as like granitic rock. It's not, it's just not the sketchiest rock quality you could have out there either. And so, you know, it's hard climbing, but you don't feel like you're going to die. And that actually, for me, is the sweet spot in having a, a nice, enjoyable climb.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I personally, I love. Feeling like I'm not going to die, you know. I I I strive for that, honestly, most day to day circumstances. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm being cheeky, but it was like a it was a goal of ours from the beginning to you know. So often, if you're in climbing media or say you're making a documentary about climbing, you end up getting stuck in these story imperatives where you know it's got to be about risking life and limb and. You know, are they going to live or is he going to die? That's kind of the central question that drives a lot of storytelling. We wanted to make a, a movie that was, you know, wasn't like, are they going to live or are they going to die? It was more like, you know, check out how like how really rad and beautiful this is along the way.
0: T- totally. You know, that it's not a sustainable place to be as a filmmaker. You know, if you're on that edge all the time, you're not going to be making too many films speaking of that I want to know too from, from studying studying the old pictures from uh, from Washburn and just kind of those images from long ago did, did you notice anything different being there in person as far as changes to the landscape or what what kind of things did you notice that weren't the same
2: well yeah that's a good that's a really good question you can kind of see throughout the film it's kind of this subtle device where There's the Washburn photo, and then there's the gyro-stabilized helicopter motion rendition, recreation of that photo that cuts from one to the other. And with the help of the the Park Service, because this is all um, such massive terrain, and you're not allowed to fly drones in the park, and the Park Service and John Lennon, the superintendent at the time, and everyone was such... Big fans of Washburn that part of our library was going around and matching a lot of his his most famous photos where you could see the crazy glacial retreat and the changes of the landscape, which is which is not insignificant. So yeah, that's part of the library that I, I'm sure will get used in the future for some of that visual comparison research. And yeah, in a lot of cases, uh, we were. We are yeah, just recreating exactly the photo that Washburn took and trying to do it justice, which, yeah, I guess uh, imitation is the best form of, of just a phrase, is exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's, we, we were such fans at that point, as well as the Park Service, that it, it was a, a really magical couple sessions that we had traversing the range, not only documenting a lot of it, like it had never been seen before with this gyro-stabilized camera system on the, the park rescue helicopter right? it wasn't
0: being used for rescues, but also just seeing the changes since when he first photographed it. Was there a uh, understanding of the, speaking of like high-tech stuff like that, I know that what you were physically wearing was also probably pretty different than what they were wearing. Just um, a lot has changed in the last uh, century. Half century. So do, do, was there? Were y'all aware? Just knowing the historical perspective, like the difference in kit—literally what you had versus what they had—in the same areas—and was there like a heightened level of respect after that? Talk about maybe some of those realizations.
1: Yeah, I think Brad was a planner. He was kind of famous for his uh, his Lucania climb that we talk about in the film a little bit. And that's known as the sort of one of the original light and fast, uh, kind of go for broke, you know, big mountain climbs. But that was really the exception to the rule for him. He was much more of a planner and a meticulous, like, you know, let's bring 600 pounds of stuff to base camp kind of guy. He never had a single accident. Wow. You know, with... With you know, on any of his mountaineering trips, and um, you know, I think that speaks to you know the kind of operation he was running.
2: Yeah, and, and when we did the recreations, we we started to uh, you know research well, leather flight suits and things like that, and that was a cool exploration into like some of the older gear and like realizing how how effective it, it was, and it's its pitfalls, but also its strengths. But yeah, we we definitely had a much easier time climbing with all the ultra lightweight modern gear and just gave us a lot more respect for for what he was accomplishing. And you see how heavy the camera and the tripod they're carrying to the top of Denali is, which is still one of the harder climbs in the
1: world. Yeah, it was was no joke, Um, you know, the physical, Capability and just like grit and determination that, that he had and Barbara and their whole teams. I do see a similarity, Renan, though, because you bring a lot of shit on your expeditions too. <laughs> and like, you know, any Renan expedition, Mason, there's 10 50-pound bags for all the camera gear. And so Renan might give Brad a run for his money there.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a counterintuitive thing. Like the, I mean, all of us got, we weren't even filmmakers or photographers really mixed with climbing until the cameras got digital and really small. But then once we discovered the small cameras, we just wanted to risk ourselves and and our physical capabilities, not not just to climb the peak, but to carry bigger cameras up them. And yeah, you you can see it in the film, whereas you have to pick the right, partners for that who are sort of down for the the creative endeavor of making it harder just for the sake of documenting it at a higher level and at a certain point our buddy zach just wasn't into that which is which is totally fine but yeah there are points where we'd be on the traverse attempting it and he would you know the leader goes out without a pack and the follower carries the heavy pack, and I'd be out in the lead and look back, and Zach would find some big microphone in the in the pack
0: that he had, he's the guy who weighs every gram of tiny scales before you leave for the climb, and he just gave me a dirty look and <laughs> keep climbing. Um, and that you know eventually fell apart and him where he sort of fell out of love with the with the process that we were involved in and in trying to document. This first ascent in the spirit of Washburn, he just wanted to climb for the the purity of it, and that's a that's an interesting subplot in the theme and the intersection of. Um, it's an interesting subplot in the film, but the intersection of just how professional climbing and the different forms of creativity are involved in these big endeavors. And it's not not the same for everyone. There's no right answer and. We're still great. But he's his back and he's, he's
2: killing it. And it's like has a has a family and his his joy ro- revolves more around the art of flight, the paragliding and, and windsurfing at the moment.
0: It is a balance. You know, there's I am not someone that does a great job of documenting my trips. And there are many times where I wish I was, just to be able to share it in a better way. But when I attempt to it doesn't go well. So (laughs) I kind of leave it up to people like y'all to, oh, I've been there. That's the place that I was telling you about. That's the thing I did. Um, So I'm glad that there are folks out there that do find a lot of joy and have a passion for that because it's needed. You'd need to be able to see these things to, one, aspire to them yourself and two, care about them, care about these the conservation, care about the history uh, and want to protect these places. So- it's definitely a balance. I, I wanna know too, you know, this is such a daunting uh task. There's so much, you know, serious energy, there's a lot of logistics. What's maybe one of the funniest situations on this whole experience of producing this film that y'all found yourselves in? Maybe it was on the climb itself or getting ready. Was there anything you look back on and say that was that was hilarious? I
2: was gonna tell the story of like trying to do that recreation and we're trying to find like hemp rope to create the cat's cradle that brad tied himself up in to hang out the plane and taylor our our producer is is,
0: uh is ordering stuff to our house like one day a package shows up from from kink.com and i'm like what's it's not gonna be i guess (laughs) she didn't know it at the time but the hemp rope came from from (laughs) kink.com for the recreation that is funny that is funny, golly! Um, what about you, Freddie?
1: Yeah, I uh, really a lot of a lot of hijinks, you know, the the, the recreations, and we had we forged a really really nice uh, relationship with the uh, Museum of the North at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who gets a shout out and a thank you. They, you know, we went up there and they actually had uh, a collection of Brad's nineteen thirties. Uh, mountaineering equipment, like, preserved in their museum as, like, an archive for, you know, generations of people to come to understand how, you know, the first mountains were, you know, big mountains were climbed in Alaska. And that was really cool to to go and, and talk to some of the folks who curate that. And um, then somehow we convinced them to let us borrow Brad's camera, which... Brad had donated to the museum. And then like late in life, when he was kind of a, a, an older gentleman, he had gotten to this kerfuffle where he asked for the camera back. And the museum said, well, sir, it's, it's in our archive. We need you to sign this paperwork or whatever to get your own camera back. Brad got all grumpy about it. And so there was this already this hilarious story about it. And so they were like, well we just want to make things right. And like, you know what? We feel like we can take a chance and we'll just load you this camera. And so we sent our, uh, sort of our intern on like a six hour road trip from Calcutta to Fairbanks to, you know, sign out this eight by 10 inch negative. And, uh, you know, he drove it back to us and then it was an airplane as part of the shoot you see in the film. Um, So... A lot of things came together, but it was kind of, you know, at different times we definitely felt like Brad and Barbara's spirit was was helping us along a little bit in, in making these things happen.
0: Too cool. They were you know, the museum's like, Oh, we owe them one here to go ahead and use it. You know, we we felt like it was it was undone from before. So that's that's awesome to be able to cash in on that IOU a little bit. Yeah. What what was the using the camera like? That's pretty interesting. Was it I, I I don't know. Did it feel like a, you know, obsolete now, or was it like, wow, this is this is really something special to use?
1: We didn't actually like shoot, uh, you know, negatives with it. Just sourcing the film and uh, everything needed to, to, to shoot and develop would have been own rabbit hole go down. So we didn't get to do that. But uh, just seeing those things, to me, it is really cool. It's a tangible connection. So cool. That is awesome. Yeah but another story about birch bark canoes right now you know' I've been around North America for thousands of years and I don't know about birch bark canoes but I feel the same way about them and they do large format aerial um, and they're very much they still feel functional man back in the back in that era they built things to last. And you know, those things like, yeah, they're dated, but they don't feel obsolete.
2: Really yeah. Brad's camera was one of the coolest parts of the entire process, being able to handle that and, and shoot it in the air. We got some really special light up there and the whole viewfinder with, with the crosshairs and being able to point a lens like through that and have the sun splintering through it. Above a sea of clouds, at, at fourteen thousand feet above the range, with Denali in the background, was was one of the most
0: magical moments of the whole process, for sure. Unbelievable! That is too cool. Wow. Yeah. Just the, the historical aspect of this is is so neat, um, and so unique. I feel like for uh, a, a film, a, a modern film, you know, d- d- you were talking a little bit before about you know films just being all about you know adrenaline junkies, uh, just kind of seeing that pop up. What are y'all noticing in like the world of outdoor and mountaineering films? And how does this film fit in? Like what, what kind of trends are you seeing? And are you hoping that this film either course corrects some of that focus or do you see plenty of projects going on with, with amazing storytelling like this?
2: Um, Yeah, I guess I'll go first on this one. Um, Yeah, I think more and more there's incredible films are popping up not only in the adventure space, but in all different spaces, um, especially in the last few years that are tackling like huge and important issues. And yeah, for us, it was a little tricky, not only with COVID, but just in the sense of this being a a largely a film about, you know, privileged white guys and exploration. Although Brad came from privilege, it's incredible to see what he did, did with it. And we hope that it kind of provides an example of how you can do adventure films that are that are focused more than just the the conquering aspect, and maybe that's was like a risky maneuver on our part to go after this complicated dual narrative that had a lot of historical elements and didn't play up the suffering as much as a lot of um, you know some of the advisors. <laughs> Had, had suggested but at the same time we're hoping that it, it helps answer that question of of why you do it in the first place which is the question that you can never answer in words in in a form like like this and you kind of have to make something with music and visuals where you just kind of have to feel it and yeah that's that was our our small contribution to that that we hope will stand the test of time and people can pull bits and pieces either from the modern adventure story part of it or the historical part of it um, as it as it lives its life out there in the uh, in the metaverse, so to speak.
1: Yeah, one of the things about sanctity of space taking 10 years to make was that a whole generation of incredible, you know, outdoor adventure documentary filmmakers uh, kind of came of age. And, and there's been some incredible movies coming out. Like, and a lot of them, you know, are done by our friends or, you know, we've been involved with, uh, you know, Jimmy and Renan making Meru. And, you know, that came out, you know, only eight years ago now, but, you know, that was huge. Uh, Free solo, you know the alpinist, you know. Mm-hmm. though I'm just mentioning a few, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. There's been this kind of wave of documentary climbing films, and I think in a lot of ways that kind of like you know, hopefully, that you know, kind of creates some space for sanctity of space. Um, <laughs> in that, um, there's a huge audience now of folks who who are just into you know good good stories about about mountains and adventure and you know i don't think we you know even though you know we had a a very small theatrical release i never really imagined that possible you know when we started this project so props to all our friends who who have made those other films and, and kind of created this this genre that's that's a real hotbed of creativity
0: love it so awesome well well to wrap up, I'd, I'd love to ask y'all both one more question um, about the film. What do you think you learned through this 10-year process, one of the biggest lessons you've learned specifically from this project? And also, what are you hoping that the audience learns?
2: I mean, honestly, I think we're still, we're still learning. Um, I think we definitely are starting to learn the benefit of kind of the long game with some of these stories since this was over 10 years and there were there were ups and downs and sometimes question marks is if we should proceed. And I think we, we learned that is, you know, the satisfaction of actually finishing something that that's, that's so long and difficult and has so many parts to it. Um, that's just sort of on a, on a personal level, obviously, the whole film itself was an exploration and learning into Brad's Brad's life. And when you're making like a film and collaborating with so many different artists, you're constantly learning through them. Um, just quick shout out to, to Logan, our composer, the incredible music, which is recorded live at the orchestra in Budapest. Um, and that that's always a process that's mind blowing that you learn so much of. Um, about like the musical language, but I think in general we just hope hope the audience takes away a little bit of the joy of climbing and the majesty of the Alaska Range. There's never going to be a, a perfect way to to do it justice um, on on camera, and there's always going to be the next greatest technology, and you really have to go up there and take a flight over the range, and you'll you'll probably be brought to tears. But we hope that people take away um, a little bit of that emotion at certain points of the film and some of the some of the moments that we captured combined with Brad's raspy raspy uh, voice guiding us through.
1: Yeah, everything Renan just said, and you know ho- hopefully, you know, this movie reminds everyone and, and ourselves included just to cherish those, you know, partnerships and um, human bonds that you, you know, forge and, and maintain through adventure and exploration, however it fits into your life. And that's kind of a big message of like Brad's life. He says it, you know, much better than I just did in the film. But, you know, when you're lying on your deathbed, you know, you're probably going to remember, like, you know, who were those people you were with when you were, you know, camped out on the glacier and, you know, a week of bad weather, you know, way back when when you did that expedition. Or, you know, who was your buddy you did that road trip with to, to go climbing for the summer? You know, those are probably the things that you're really going to carry with you, or so I've been told. So.
0: Fantastic, y'all. Well, Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the film and just some of the reflections. I know it's out right now. Um, we're going to point to folks uh, where, where they can find it, but is there a particular place you want folks to watch over, over another?
2: I'd say it'd be nice to bump up our status in the charts since in on iTunes <laughs> specifically since uh, it'd be fun to, to take down the jackasses at number one, the jackass forever movie <laughs> um, that would uh in terms of the juxtaposition between adrenaline fueled antics and kind of this deeper
0: exploration into the ethos of adventure that would be a good case study so i'm curious to see how that plays out so i'd probably point people towards itunes
1: itunes it is
0: yeah, let's uh let's take down Jackass. I mean it's it's you know a reflective <laughs> inspiring work as well, but uh definitely of our generation and will probably go down in history. But yeah, to- totally <laughs> I think your movie's a little a little more a little more insightful for sure but uh well awesome y'all well thanks for jumping on and thanks for the work you do and i'm looking forward to get it out there to the world a little a little bit more through our audience so uh yeah have, have a great day have a great weekend and we'll talk soon
1: awesome thanks for having us mason
0: yeah i really really appreciate it mason nice to meet you first of all